This week's episode is brought to you in part by FNX Fit, a fitness supplements brand that can get you hooked up with all of your pre, post, during workout needs as well as other nutritional supplements. Use checkout code CARLPOOLING at fnxfit.com to get 15% off your order. Welcome back to Carl Pulling. I know what you're thinking. This is this is strange because this is the first episode where I've listened to Carl Pulling in a completely liquid form. We've <laughs> all raised our specific heat up past the point, uh, the human melting point. Hunter, do you know what the human melting point is by any chance? It's got to be like 75 degrees Fahrenheit, right? Like it can't be that much, right? <laughs> Because I'm turned to a puddle. Yeah, it's only like what ninety ninety five outside, and I I am fully liquid. I'm actually, I, <laughs> and it's amazing that my larynx is still functional because I thought like <laughs> I thought my larynx being solid and vibrating columns of air was kind of one of the main ways that it worked. But here, you still hear me, even though I am just a puddle. So that's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, um, that's it, that's fantastic. This heat wave is actually insane, and I, I look, I, I had to, I had to actually cancel my Infowars subscription, and not just because they declared bankruptcy. It's because I think I actually believe in global warming now. Yeah, I know. I'm, I know what you're thinking. It's, uh, it's. Can it be hot enough to make Alex Jones wrong? But then at the same time, hold on. Uh, now that we're on the topic of Alex Jones. Did you hear apparently that like the the EPA or somebody came out with findings this week that there's like 11 contaminants in the water that are not safe in any concentration in tap water across the United States? Oh, that's holy cow! That's yeah, that's not good. Is what I will say to that. So it's very bad. I mean, like, does that turn the frogs gay? Well, <laughs> in the words of Jordan Peterson, it, it depends on what you mean by frogs. And it depends on what you mean by gay. Yeah, I thought that was the word you were going to go with first. Likewise. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me introduce the the mystery laughs here on the show. I'm actually super excited about today's episode. And Jordan Peterson is incredibly relevant to this story. So Hunter and I, Hunter actually for my birthday, purchased tickets yep. for us to go enjoy the the Jordan Peterson Beyond Order talk that was being hosted uh that the tour that was being hosted uh earlier this year and you got it super super excited about it and we we bought the vip package so we got to meet him it's actually the second i time. bought the vip package yeah <laughs> okay let's let's you, be clear on this is my gift <laughs> you bought the vip package and we we uh, go, and this will actually be the second time that we've met Jordan. In fact, when I shook Jordan's hand, I had a picture of us from the first time that I'd met him. And I said, from when we were both young men, and he started cracking up. So That's awesome. I, yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, it, anyway, it was the second time. We're excited. We're in line. We're in the VIP line. And we're standing there. And uh, all of a sudden, someone's like, from behind us, like, is this the VIP line? And I was like, well, we sure hope so. I have no idea, actually. Um, and we get to talking, and there was some confusion with the tickets and the lines and all, everything like that. But the person who asked us the question, the person we started talking to, was our new friend, Hari, who is joining us on the show today. And Hari 
was not positive that he was going to be able to actually do the meet and greet part of the event because of some ticket confusion. And it led to him asking me if I would if I would deliver a paper he'd written to Jordan Peterson. And I was like, well, I'm not about to give Jordan anthrax, my guy. Like, I don't know. (laughs) So I asked him what the paper was about. And he said, well, it's about uh, delayed choice experiments and uh, wave function collapse. And I was like, wait, (laughs) wait for real? Because I guess it was a a year or two ago when I like called Hunter in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. Yeah freaking out about some papers and meta studies that I had read on the a delayed choice quantum eraser experiment and the implications of such an experiment. It is truly one of the most fundamentally say that um, oh, incredible things save in science. I'm, okay. That's all I'm going to say about it. So <laughs> to hear somebody else just mention it out of the blue, I mean, nobody talks about this stuff truly. And so I was like, we had a little conversation about it and I was like, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. So I was like in my head and in my heart, I'm not giving this paper to Jordan. (laughs) I'm just going to read it myself (laughs) because I want to know what this guy has to say. Luckily the tickets got worked out and this is the kind of guy that Hari is. And I've only known him for a short while, but he's so organized that when I said, well, like, let me give you your information so I can read the paper as well. He goes, oh, well, I brought a second copy. So <laughs> I've had the paper copy sitting on my desk. I've read it a couple of times now. So without further ado, I'm super excited for this conversation. We're going to get into some scientific topics that uh, breach the incredible, uh, but the repeatable and the verifiable in a really cool way. So Hari, hello. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. This is great. And it was, certainly was a very fortuitous meeting. That extra, that extra essay, I mean, that's what law school does. You know, it, it makes you make sure you're prepared. <laughs> plus, I was a boy, plus, I was a Boy Scout. And so, you know, be prepared. Exactly. So, he, yeah, yeah. He's everything that my mother wanted me to be. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so, Hari, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what you come from, what your background is, what you're up to, just to get people uh, anchored, if you don't mind. Yeah, definitely. So um, I went to school in Syracuse, studied finance. Um, I was living out in California for a while working in corporate finance and then in venture capital, um, all the while never really having my heart in it. Um, and kind of my, my academic pursuits on the side are what kind of just gave me vitality. So, re- you know, read a lot of philosophy, a lot of physics. Um, and the, the, the essay that I gave Jordan Peterson that I gave you, it was kind of years in the making because I've been wrestling with these questions for as long as I can remember. And, um, you know, I certainly do think there's there's place for science and divinity to 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 ha- find a happy medium and to 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 reconcile into a theory that, you know, we can all we, that kind of works for all of us. Yeah. And that was kind of what the essay was about. And um, so what I'm doing here in Atlanta, uh, kind of mentioned it. I just started law school at Emory and you met Sophia. She was in the line with us. Uh, she and I, uh, I got, kind of got her into Jordan Peterson couple months ago we started watching his lectures nice and uh as a surprise i gave got you know got us these tickets to to the uh the lecture in, in april that we that we met at and um yeah it was the the essay that i wrote i had kind of been developing it for a few months and when i found out that i couldn't meet him i told sophia i'm like just just pray with me you know let's just let's see if we can work this out and make sure we can meet him and um thankfully we did and yeah, yeah, because you got the the ticket situation got worked out, as I recall, and you guys were it able did. To yeah, turn. well, yeah. basically, what they said is they said come talk to the tour people towards the end of the show, and they might have some extras. And as soon as he finished his lecture and started the Q and A, I ran downstairs, 
And fortunately, I saw this woman, and she came up to the desk, and then she was about to leave. And for whatever reason, she saw that I was like kind of confused, and I, I, I like I needed help. And she was like, "Can I help you?" I'm like, "Thank, thank God you asked, because like, yeah, this this thing happened with the tickets, and I was hoping to meet him. I wrote him this essay, and she, you know, just very accommodating, thankfully, and and worked it out so that me and Sophia could both meet Jordan Peterson. And he hasn't gone back to me yet, but um, I I do know that he looked at my Facebook profile recently. And so it's certainly oh, possible really? that he might reach out. Yeah, I got this app called XView. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, no. It's on Apple. And um, it tells you who looks at your Facebook profile. And um, the stri- uh, it, has two, it has like two features. One is friend, friend interactions, which shows you like which one of your friends looked at your profile recently. And then it has stranger interactions. And so on there, Jordan Pearson popped up like this week, indicating that he just looked at my profile. So wow. who knows? It's, pos- it's possible cool. I might hear from him. We'll see, but well, if, uh, if you yeah, do, fingers you, crossed. You, you're booked on the show again, just to let you know. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Uh, and also, I have got to go delete my Facebook immediately, I think. <laughs> I didn't know that that was a possibility. So I'm in huge trouble, actually. <laughs> um, I'm going to be sending the rest of the show in a state of existential dread. But uh, it, yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. We're going to have an awesome discussion today. And I, I love how you've couched it, that there is a there is a formulation where the scientific and the divine can rest comfortably together. And Hunter and I believe this deeply, even though I don't think you'll ever necessarily be able to measure the totality of the divine using you know our our profane human instruments i believe that true religion and true science aren't just aren't just compatible enough that they are perfectly compatible that one reinforces and buttresses the other and hunter and i have have discussed that a lot before on the show so uh it this definitely this is a, a really a really fortuitous find before we get into that, before we get into the heady and the the important and the infinite, we have to take a little time to wallow in the mud with the liberals. And to that end, Hunter, please, yes. please deliver to us the ridiculosity from the left this week in the form of the roadkill. Well, it is June. Um, and oh, to God, celebrate. No. Biden is trying to reboot, reboot, excuse me, the Ministry of Truth, and he's appointed oh the perfect person to lead it, our fearless Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, so so i'll just read you a little bit of this article vice president kamala harris is finally coming back out of hiding in order to let uh, lead brand new internet censorship ministry of truth style task force that aims to shoot down gender disinformation so basically we've got a brand new one of these things because the first one was so good uh that is basically going to strike down disinformation on uh twitter and everywhere else uh, gender not, disinformation, like what? Like saying that a man can't be pregnant? Yeah, yeah, like that. Like that's that hate speech. Kari, we don't accept that kind of hate speech on this show. <laughs> You're on thin ice, mister. Yeah. Um, what? <laughs> Why would you put Kamala Harris in charge of anything other than a brothel? I don't understand. <laughs> like, what, what, God. what is the executive planning here? I don't get, I don't understand her at all. And yeah. Okay, it's sorry that we have to allude to Alex Jones twice in the same show, because here's the thing. When the government starts talking about 
censoring what you say online. You know that they're controlled by the reptilian clockwork demons from an inner dimension. You know what I'm saying? Like, why would you I'm give terrified. the conspiracy theorists this much leverage to just be like, oh, the go government's creating the Ministry of Truth. That's like from 1984. It's like from the handbook. Why play, dire <laughs> why play directly from it? You are enabling the worst from the worst among us, my friend. Yeah. It's just crazy. It's yeah. crazy. Also, where does the government get off? Like, where? Why? Why do they think this has ever been in their mandate? Yeah, it is so it's crazy. It's absurd. Well, that's the view. thing with this. That's the thing with this ideology. There's zero creativity to it, and it's like completely predictable. Right. And it's like you know that when when your entire theory of knowledge relies on an idea and not something that's verifiable by fact, you have to shut down free thought. That's yes. your only option. And so it's not surprising when they actually go that route. And it's like, you're right, it's completely by the playbook. It's like they might as well be writing, we might as well the, be in 1984 right now. You know? Yeah, yeah. This is like the the alternate dimension sequel prequel. <laughs> I, and it, it's, so, it's so true, too. You know, they explicitly say that they're, we're going to leave the realm of the verifiable. When they say things like speech is violence, like violence right. has evidence, uh, unless you put unless a bar of soap heard. in a sufficiently thick tube sock, then it won't bruise as easily. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. typically, typically violence has evidence, and right. so that that's the verifiable, that's the factual, transactional, that's the real level and right. then you go well your speech is violence and you're like well because it harmed my mental state and how can i quantify <laughs> that you know right and exactly it, it's, it's all subjective. It's impossible yeah and so yeah. there is there is no measurement um yeah uh, have you guys so, seen i'm sure you guys have watched what is a woman oh yeah. documentary oh yes, it's yeah. so good and i was shocked to see that you know you would think that this this ideology is more kind of just like in the universities it's more um, you know, among people who are educated beyond the point of practicality. Mm -hmm. But I was I was shocked that when Matt Walsh was on the street and and he was taught he was trying to ascertain, okay, what is the truth? The common response he got is, well, what is your truth? Yes. And Matt yeah. Walsh was say, well, I'm not look, I'm not trying to find my truth. I'm trying to trying to find the truth. There's mm -hmm. only one. There's only one reality. And and no one seemed to understand this anymore, which is pretty shocking. Yeah, it, I I feel yeah, like there's ahead, I feel like there's certain there's certain questions like that that trigger this response in people. Like if you ask someone what's one plus one, they'll say two because that's the truth. But then there's right. in this cultural, like just nonsense where it's the obvious answer doesn't get you killed. So to speak, yep. you know, right. people, you know, well, you know, math matters. And, but people just feel like they don't know how to play the game. They get really scared right. really quickly because they're afraid oh, exactly. of your motives or they're afraid of right. what someone might think if they actually answer honestly. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm going to go side... Think, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, I think for a lot of these people, that's exactly what it is. They're 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 playing their part and a lot of it is just fear-driven, which is really unfortunate. Mm. And, you know, the more the more that people like, like you, people like us, you know, stand up and say, you know what, the emperor has no clothes, one plus one is two, a man cannot get pregnant... Yes. Um, I think it, it paves the way for other people to be a little more honest about all this craziness. Yes. Now that you've referenced the emperor who has no, the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> I sent my, I was like four in the morning. I sent my favorite text message of all time to our little group chat. And it was a, it was a modern retelling of the emperor has no clothes. And it was, it was Rain Wilson on Twitter who was, uh, um, talking about how he was apologizing for, uh, using the term 
breastfeeding instead of like <laughs> chest, chest feeding. feeding. Oh, that's so <laughs> gross. The only person who I can chest feed is a cannibal. I just I want you to know that, okay? God. Like, it, it makes no milk. It's it's lactose free <laughs> among other compounds. But anyhow, then so he had just apologized for that and his like follow-up tweet was like, "Why do these people who say that they hate government overreach want the government to tell women what they can and can't do with their body. It was like a real stupid tweet. And yeah. then the tweet, the a subtweet of it, this individual was saying, honestly, it's disparities in intellectual uh, capability. <laughs> Basically saying anyone who disagrees with me is dumb. He said, if you aren't creative enough to understand the truth of who you are and what you are, then you're never going to be ready to live in this progressive new world. And then you click on that person's profile picture, and it's very clearly a dude <laughs> wearing lipstick and a muumuu. Oh, <laughs> it's my like, God. And you're going to tell other people that they don't understand who and what they are, and you don't even know you don't even know what gender you're supposed to be. It was just so rich, but I was like, uh, I sent it to them, and uh, the the format was the emperor has no clothes. The modern retelling, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's exactly it's the perfect oh, way man. to describe it. And uh, if there's any story that's human, uh, it is that story that that we will we will parade around our lack of knowledge like a virtue, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll do it too if we don't think about it. Anyhow, uh, Hunter, thank you. For yeah. gifting us with that, and God bless, <laughs> God bless Kamala Harris and the uh, the Ministry of Truth, because I'm, I'm telling you, you you do not want to be in those crosshairs. <laughs> I don't believe. I, I no. think I think the left hand holds something worse than what the right hand is delivering here. Okay, <laughs> I can't wait anymore. I want to talk about science. So I'm gonna I'm oh, gonna yeah. briefly introduce this topic. And then I'm going to throw it over to Hari to kind of lay out the paper, and we'll just see where the where the conversation takes us. Okay. Before I do that, I'm going to go way back to the past. When Hunter and I did the What is God episode, I really wanted to talk about delayed choice. Uh, we didn't end up talking about delayed choice. And the reason was it is a very complicated topic, and I was just learning about it myself in a, in a fundamental way and – when I was explaining it to other people, I was getting out notebooks and pens and papers and protractors and straight edges and drawing these diagrams out and explaining to people how this system actually worked because it is it is both complicated and incredible. And so I was busy about that. I was reading scientific papers and, and meta-analysis and in a side story that we won't exactly tell, there's like this one meta study that tries to debunk all of it. And I was reading it one night. This would actually cause me to call Hunter at 3 a.m. in like a, a absolute <laughs> ecstasy because they didn't use the, the chain rule on a, a um, integral they were taking in the paper that everyone cites to disprove this stuff. And I was like, I'm not even that good at calculus, but like, I know, I know how not to be an idiot immediately. And so I called her and I was like, these people are so full of crap. They don't, they can't even do calculus. And then I did the integral right. And it expressly proved what they didn't want to prove. So it, it was just such a joke. Uh, anyhow, um, it's complicated stuff. It's interesting stuff. I wanted to talk about it back then. And the reason I wanted to talk about it is because I think it 
is one of these scientific topics that goes directly into the connection between the divine and and the mundane and so i i have been playing with the idea of talking about this forever and reading harry's paper i thought this is a great framework to have this discussion in and the paper is is basically designed around two concepts and the interplay between those concepts so we have the ordering principle which i think is a a great way to state this apparent phenomena where entropy rules the day but something other than entropy rules the eon we'll get into that more later and then of course uh wave function collapse and delayed choice uh so hari i'm gonna toss it over to you can you introduce those topics and introduce the the paper and the discussion and we'll go from there Definitely. So, I, I mean, I think a good way to, to start that is to kind of uh, introduce the question that I started with, which was, if we look at the world today, it's like we see all this stuff of exquisite complexity and beauty. And it's so far and away from how the universe actually started. And we have no explanation as to why we perceive this level of beauty, why the universe evolved to this level of complexity. And the best, the best explanation that you know the materialists come up with is oh it was all random it was random chance by which we have all this meaning and all this beauty and that just i mean that just didn't make any sense to me but at the same time you know when i was growing up like dogmatic religion didn't make any sense to me either and so i was trying to i was wrestling with this apparent paradox which is we live in this incredibly beautiful and meaningful world but you know the the uh ideology de jour that tries to explain it through uh, religion, it, co- it comes attached with this this dogmatic theory of interpretation that, that for me, as, you know, growing up just never really worked for me. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, how did we get this world? It, it clearly wasn't random. And so if we think about, I mean, the physicists, we know that there are a few constants in the universe. We know that there are the four forces. So for people who, who aren't familiar with this stuff, there's electromagnetism, there's gravity, and there's strong weak nuclear interaction. Those are the only four constants that were that existed at the start of the universe, right after the Big Bang. Otherwise, all we had was an absolutely unorganized mass of quantum bits. Um, there, was, there weren't really any particles, per se, at the moment of the Big Bang. It was just a, a tremendous amount of energy. And then from there, from that absolute chaos, we got the first subatomic particles. From there, the first atoms. From there, the first molecules. Um, eventually, you know, Earth formed, the other planets formed, solar systems and, and galaxies started to form. And then... On Earth, we had the first protein-based molecular machines. And then at some point, for some reason that we cannot explain, those protein-based molecular machines decided that they must encode themselves into nucleotide structures that enable whatever patterns those molecular machines were engaging in to persist throughout time. And then for reasons we still don't understand, uh, random mutation variation was introduced into that nucleotide structure to make sure that whatever patterns they were engaging in could adapt in a way that would uh, allow them to persist through a continually changing environment. And entropy and and the four forces don't explain why or how that happened. And it was, it was essentially that process, that process of uh, ensuring that these complex patterns that were, that these these molecular systems were engaging in, it was a pro- to, to actually persist those throughout time 
entropy of four forces don't tell us how or why that happened. So clearly, if you look at if you look at the trajectory of being, you you start with uh, you start with a scenario in which you have massively disorganized, uh, massively disorganized chaos of pre-cosmogonic particles, and from there you have you have an increasing degree of complexity, and you have matter organizing itself into more and more stable, meaningful, and complex patterns. Eventually eventually forming something as complex as the human mind, which can even, you know, generate, uh, it can even generate and recognize true patterns, what we call beauty, um, and things like music and artwork and fiction. And yeah. so, go, go ahead. Let me let me bring the, the audience up to speed here for just saying, this is something that Hunter and I have discussed before and, and something that I truly believe. Uh, we're talking about evolutionary biology here, as well as the, the origins of the universe. And one of the things about creationism versus, versus um, evolutionism or the Big Bang incarnate, whatever it is that that brings about the universe, it's relevant to study these things uh, just regardless of your belief structure because the the resulting principle is the same. Whatever is created by evolution is that which nature selects and that that output would be very similar to what a designer would make for a given environment. It's one of the reasons that, because personally, I don't believe, I don't believe in macroevolution. I, I obviously believe in microevolution. I, I have, I'm open to the concept, but I've never seen macroevolution. You know, I've never experienced macroevolution. Uh, I've never had somebody say they had evidence of macroevolution. Regardless, I study evolutionary biology. I'm actually, I'm actually infatuated with it because it explains. It's so explanatory about the current design of human beings, and so I think reasonable people can disagree with that. But it's incredibly relevant to study this this structure where we've got, you know, for, like you said, Harry, we have absolutely no idea why there were why there were these basic protein-based machines. We have no idea why they organized themselves into RNA. Um, we have no idea why there, there's random random chance that, that could occur. We have no idea why any of these things happened. And then even more fundamentally, the, the pre-cosmogonic particles that you were referencing, those, the fact that those exist shatter the laws of thermodynamics right there. And so, exactly. and so the, there's this, there's this, lack of knowledge upon lack of knowledge upon lack of knowledge and and right. we entropy i mean we learn it you learn it in high school entropy runs the game right that everything tends toward a state of disorder and we see this happening but they right. explain humanity like what we you could argue that that a hot dense soup of electrons is less complex than a human and if you do that you're probably fighting an uphill battle i think so anyway <laughs> exactly. I, I, I just, I just want to make sure folks are following along hunter are you and so Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just gonna say, Hunter. Do you have any? Do you have any questions? Do you have any? Uh, no, I'm on. For us? I'm on for this ride. I'm. I'm thinking. I think the thing that's interesting to me in some of this conversation is um, what Hari was saying about art there at the end, um, and that our brains recognize those true patterns. I. I, I want to hold on to that and kind of continue this conversation to see where that comes out. It, oh yeah, it, we're, we'll come back. I'm sure. Yeah. So, but no, okay. I, I'm. I'm holding on tight. Uh, all right, awesome. Go back a couple to you, more right? things. A couple more things I want to like. I can mention about that. So, like, if we look at just the history of the universe, the history of matter as as we know it, we know that this this pattern is unfolding. We know that that pattern is moving from more rudimentary patterns and more chaos to 
more organization, more complex patterns, and more meaning. Um, and going back to the evolutionary question, it's like, obviously, this, this phenomenon exists. And the only way you can explain it is that, okay, well, that is how the universe or matter or being itself has to deal with the question of organizing chaos. Because there's, there's no other reason, especially if you look at the fact that these patterns, obviously, at, at some point, some decision, and I, I don't want to say decision because that, that imputes uh, a consciousness to it, which may not be, I mean, independent of, of what you think of the nature of the divine, um, you know, clearly at some point, the the matter in the universe determined that it must continue to engage in stable patterns. And the only way to do that, the only way to answer the question of a constantly changing environment is to basically produce a million variants and then you know, mutate a small fraction of them. And that small fraction that manages to navigate itself through a continually changing environment continues to order the chaos around it. And so clearly matter is getting more and more complex, but at the same time, it's getting more and more adept at organizing chaos. And so it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to deny that some purpose exists underneath that. Because if we look at the history of matter, it's been doing exactly that. It's been becoming more and more complex and becoming more adept and more effective at organizing chaos that surrounds it. And that's, and that's what in the paper you refer to as the, the ordering principle. The ordering principle. And, yeah. and you, can, you can, it is, I would say it's impossible to deny its existence because it's a pattern that we can observe. We can see it happening. We've seen it happening. And to the extent that we know about the evolution of the human mind, we know that something has been pushing life to evolve to a point where it can recognize beauty and meaningful patterns and even right. create them. I, I and, agree completely that we can, it, that there's, there is a, there is an ordering principle. Now there's, I, there's some question about where it interacts and where it doesn't interact. And, and if there's states of decay and, and states of growth, but you can obviously say that from the beginnings of the universe to now, things are more ordered than they should be. That there's no right. reason for things to be as ordered as they are. Now, when you look at, for instance, that in the in the 1980s, Billy Joel's Glass Houses was on the radio, and today it's full of Lizzo, you'd be like, okay, so we've we've made some things disordered in the meantime. Uh, which actually, Lizzo has almost ruined my faith in God. But <laughs> but regardless, um, yeah, I think I think that that's an interesting discussion. But I, I, on the broad stroke, you absolutely can't deny that there are there's the four forces in entropy and mass space time and energy and that is the whole theory of the universe and we are way more organized than just the materialist forces of the universe can exactly. ever make us the four forces in entropy cannot explain how we reach this level of complexity and meaning right right they so simply the, cannot and the ordering principle is like our stand-in for x there x right. exactly and yeah. call x what you want to call it um but there's clearly something else Right. Absolutely. And I mean, religions have called that God, but whether or not you, you subscribe, subscribe to the major faiths of the world today, whether or not you subscribe to those, that force exists, that yeah. organizing ordering principle exists. It, 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 before we move and on, science to has the, no answer for choice. it. Yeah, well, it's here's a, it, it's like they they look straight at it and they play dumb. Because this is what yeah. drives me crazy because yeah. they right. they believe even in the theory of the Big Bang, which uh, you know our scientific regressive models can take us down to like one second times t to the negative eleven microseconds before uh, or after the Big Bang. Like we can we right. can draw history down that far, but not quite to the beginning. And so 
they say in the in the intermediate time there there was this spaceless timeless energyless massless point that contained all the possibilities of the universe and potentially of all possible universes right and they say they they theorize about this this point that is is literally supernatural if you define supernatural as not able to be contained within our our natural world which is defined by thir- three well, it, dimensions of space quite, and dimension of time it quite literally is supernatural because yeah. as far as we know the laws of physics break down when you go back that far exactly and then they go well, there's definitely not God because we told you that there's something that's supernatural. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> right, right, you, be- exactly. you believe in this so, thing that shatters all of right. your laws. You know, like, right. I'm not saying that that proves God or a consciousness, <laughs> but it definitely doesn't disprove it. <laughs> like, exactly. What are you talking about? Exactly. Right. So, right. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's talk about then how what delayed choice is and how it relates to this. I think that's where we start getting right. into the, the mystic so stuff I think- that... I think most of your listeners probably know about the dual slit experiment. And if not, I can explain it very briefly. So essentially, um, this this was observed. The fact that light behaves differently when it's observed versus unobserved was known as early as 1801. Um, Close to recent history, in like the 1970s, physicists did an experiment where they shot a beam of photons through a piece of paper with two slits in it, two vertical slits. And they put a collection film at the end. And what they found was that when the photons went through this piece of paper, and land on the collection film at the back, it created a wave pattern. And so a wave pattern, essentially, if you want to visualize it, take a massive piece of paper and put it over the ocean, and it's going to create multiple bars on a piece of paper. And that's essentially what a wave pattern is. Now, when they put a camera there, or an observer, or any basically anything that creates information, what they saw was that the collection film, instead of showing a wave pattern, showed a two-bar pattern. So essentially what this meant was, in order to create a wave pattern, the the photons had to essentially go through both slits at the same time. Um, and they're traveling as basic, basically as probabilities, not as particularized photons. They're, they were, they're traveling as a wave, not particles. And we know this. We know that light can travel as a wave sometimes, and sometimes it can travel as a collection of particles or photons. But when they yeah. put the camera there, what essentially happened is the photon either went through the right slit or the left slit. It had to pick one, of, it had to pick one path. And the reason for that is a photon, as a particle, it only has a defined endpoint once it has a defined start point. It travels strictly as a vector. It can't travel in a wave pattern. It has to travel as a straight line. Um, and so when they put the camera there, the collection film had two, a two bar pattern as opposed to when they didn't put the camera there, it had a wave pattern. So they knew in the, in the 1960s or 70s that light behaves differently when it's observed or information is created with respect to its movement versus when it is not observed or no information is created. Now, right. John Wheeler in the 90s, he said, well, you know, we live on Earth here, and we have these stars surrounding us that are tens of millions of light years away. What about the behavior of those photons that are traveling throughout space? Is it the case that when we observe a photon coming from a star in the night sky, um, was it traveling as a wave or a, fo- or, or a particle? And how do we know that, right? And so he he took this this uh, this principle of kind of wave particle duality, and and applied it to you know on on in, in in interstellar terms and essentially said well if we don't know whether a photon is traveling as a wave or a particle until we observe it then we don't really know whether or not our observation today is impacting the like impacting the past of how this photon has traveled 
And so his hypothesis was that it was the act, the contemporaneous act of observing a photon on Earth today that determined whether or not it left the star as a wave or a particle, maybe 10 million years before we were, before we were even born. And that experiment was actually proven in 2017. Um, and I can get into the mechanics of how they proved it, but essentially what it meant was um, if you're on Earth today and you look at a star in the night sky, the photon that left that star would have never left the star if you weren't here on Earth to look at it the instant you did, even though the star existed 10 million years before you were even here. Um, and so our observation today actually impacts the behavior of particles in, in the past. And yeah, this is this ahead. is what this is what the the delayed choice quantum experiment um, quantum eraser experiment added on to the double slit experiment, which exactly. I'll, get, I'll get into that in a, in a bit. But there is a couple a couple points just to make sure that the audience is, is keeping up with. We know that that what Hari has been expressing about the duality of waves and particles of these photons, this is actually what quantum mechanics is at the very basis level. Quantum right. mechanics tells us that the things things behave differently as particles become increasingly small. And actually, that's what a quantum is. A quantum is a particle that is theoretically at its smallest subdivision. Um, and quantum mechanics is an explanation of how those behave. And uh, even though it sounds improbable, this is, this is settled, verified science at this point that... For instance, the electrons surrounding the nucleus of an atom that are moving around in what we used to define as orbits aren't actually moving in orbits. They move in clouds of probability. And, you know, exactly. probably when you were in high school, you were looking at a, a little circle of a nucleus with these concentric rings about it, talking about the valence shells of electrons and yep. their orbits around. And that's how we used to talk about electrons and, and different quantums back when we were using general relativity as our guide. And then we learned very, very shortly after that, that general relativity was absolutely insufficient um, at explaining the, the path and behavior of these particles, that they move like probability functions, uh, that they exhibit the, the patterns of both waves and particles which we also knew but didn't understand because like we know that like wavelength is super important like wavelength and sound generates pitch and the the wavelength and light determines its its energy and what color it might be to our eyes and whether or not it's very harmful to your to your organism and and we knew that the mm -hmm. the wave patterns of these things mattered and then the, you know the sound hits your eardrum it's a particle or the the light hits your skin and it warms up because it's a particle so we knew that there was this duality but we didn't know the interaction that's what quantum mechanics basically is and right. just to complete the drill this is the bleeding edge of science i mean the the like the million dollar question in science right now is how do we perfectly align uh there's probably two bleeding edge questions one of them is how do we create a unified theory that basically mm -hmm. takes general relativity and marries it to quantum mechanics and the other the other um question is probably is there actually a gravitational wave or is gravity just a function of time but there's those are like the big bleeding edge questions right now so right. uh now you and are a scientist go forth <laughs> and the nomenclature, the the nomenclature is informative here. So we call it quantum mechanics. A quanta is essentially a packet of information. Yeah. And essentially, what what quantum mechanics tells us is that that packet of information is not real until we look at it. 
right? Right. And so light essentially travels as a, as a wave of probability. The photons in a wave of light theoretically exist everywhere and nowhere simultaneously. And, and they don't have, a, they don't have a, a positional reality or a temporal reality. They exist in neither space nor time until we actually look at them. Yeah. And we know that because a, a photon, a particle as a photon, it, it has to travel as a vector. It has to travel as a, state, as a straight line. And so until that photon hits our retina and has, en has an endpoint, it's not going to have a defined start point. Right, because right. it's only and, when it hits our retina and and propagates through our through our nervous system that information is actually created. And that's not just theoretical, because we, that's not theoretical. Due to quantum, know that. quantum entanglement, we've been right. able to perform experience, experiments where we basically create quanta information at distances that exceed the limits of general relativity. Um, with entanglement and annihilation. Right. And so exactly. it's not just theoretical that the quantum particles exist everywhere and nowhere. It's, it's not theoretical. And this was proven. actually and proven it. So exactly. This was, this was proven through quantum erasure and through the delayed, the delayed choice experiment using yeah. interferometers. Yeah. And basically yeah. interstellar interferometers. Um, yeah. And so we know, we, 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 we know that the, ob the act of observation today actually changes the behavior of photon in the past. And just just so you can think about this more more critically, what quantum mechanics actually tells us is that the most you know in in general. So there was special relativity, um, which was basically this system of mechanics that worked f basically in a vacuum um, under the ideal circumstances. So that's why it was called special relativity. Sometimes people think that special relativity is is newer than general relativity it's the exact opposite special relativity was like in these specific set of parameters here's how things behave and that's where we got this idea that the speed of light was the constant and that's why you've heard things like no light can escape the event horizon of a black hole and different things like that uh, right then we got to general relativity which is where we took the concepts of relativity and we were able to generalize them and apply them to more situations basically uh, simply right. put. So that was Einstein's like kind of magnum opus. And then, and, and in both of those summations of, of physics and reality and mechanics, the particle is the most essential element. A particle, the, it's, it's the, in fact, the mechanic, the mechanics themselves are the interplay of particles and how they work together exactly. and move through space and have energy exhibited on right. the behavior. That's all they're talking about. And then quantum mechanics came along and said, no, actually the most fundamental particle of the universe isn't a particle. It's actually data. Data might right. be more exactly. fundamental to the universe than, than the particles that's exactly. themselves. It's, it's, it's so. information. And that's why most physicists exactly. today, they don't refer to the conservation of mass or energy they refer to the conservation of information right and that's why we've had like really bizarre experiments lately where you actually do have information leave the event horizon of a black hole and right some really well crazy... yes yeah, right hawking hawking radiation essentially right <laughs> yeah exactly holes. exactly right, right. so um, um I, I hope that helps and now, it probably doesn't <laughs> hopefully i mean these these are these are complicated things that we're that we're exploring here and so yeah. i mean at the end of the day though i think for your listeners the critical piece is that Light behaves differently when it's observed versus unobserved, and that that effect occurs not just in in space but also in time. Yeah. And so, observation of particles today actually changes their orientation in time, not strictly in space. Right, yeah, and it can absolutely. actually, 
and, and essentially, it's it, when I say changes their behavior, it snaps them into actuality, is a better way of putting it. Because you observing the photon today that left the star 10 million years ago, it's, it's your active observation that actually snaps that photon into reality 10 million years ago. Yeah. Right? And, and, th- and this is where we see the overlap of the order in principle. Yeah, let me let me go into the quantum eraser experiment because I, yeah. I, I think you did a great job at the double slit experiment. And it, it maybe we skipped over that too fast. It is actually incredible that this happens. It is incredible. You know, they we have, have no energy. we have no explanation for it. Yeah, well, absolutely no scientific explanation for it. We just have observable, repeatable data that it right. occurs. Right. But the fact right. that if you have two slits and a piece of paper and no detection to tell what pathway a a uh, quantum took it actually takes both pathways and you get the this i mean it's you can visualize it you get these waves that appear on right. the the detection medium behind behind the slit and then if you just set up a little a little detector a little passive Ooh. camera detector behind one right. of the slits so that the universe knows that you know which path the quantum took it it drops into these two clumps just like you were dripping sand out of uh um out of a hole it drops on a clump right below the the slit right where it should effectively you know obviously it's shooting sideways because of gravity okay so that that's a reality and the quantum eraser took it one step further and of course you're talking in 2017 we had basically the interstellar quantum delayed choice quantum eraser which is incredible an incredible experiment i'm going to explain the more basic version so hopefully helps people out so Quantum entanglement becomes important. Quantum entanglement means a lot of things, but for our purposes here, what it can mean is you take a single quantum and you can do this through like a, a Glenn Thompson prism, for instance. You can, you can pass a quantum through a certain type of medium and it becomes entangled with another quantum and what that means is that their eigenstate another question another thing we have to define becomes inextricably linked to this other particle and it deals with with the annihilation principle that we were talking about earlier but here's how you can think of it uh an eigenstate or an eigenstate uh, hari how do you pronounce that i i have no idea what the right way is i say eigenstate Okay, I'm going to say that that's, too. That's an that's, educated guess. But that sounds smart. That. <laughs> so, so let's call it the eigenstate. So the eigenstate... Dr. Egan d- is going to be furious with Dr. us. Dr. Egan is just <laughs> livid. Dr. Egan, I hope you're not listening to this. I was going to say, he's probably dead, but he's probably not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is all very new, which is the really yeah, cool exactly. stuff. Like we're, we're, on the, we're, and we're living the bleeding edge here. You yeah, know? It's, it's really... This stuff is mind-boggling. Uh, who, yeah. b- who can actually believe that the universe works this way? Okay, so an, an eigenstate, what does it say? It, it is effectively this concept that when you have a quantum, it exists as a wave of probabilities. And the, the probabilities uh, determine characteristics about it. For instance, people talk about like momentum or spin direction when you're talking mm-hmm. about quantum particles. Uh, mm-hmm. Those those pro or position those probabilities determine the egan state so like if you wanted to say is this is this particle spinning left or spinning right uh or is it in position one or position two 
it's in neither of them. This is Schrodinger's cat. It's in both of them given a certain weight based on its probabilities. But when right. you go to observe it, you do two things. One, you can read a fact from its from its eigenstate, and you also destroy the other information effectively. Um, right. So entangled particles will read the same way and that's why they're so useful for things like quantum computing is when you entangle two particles if one let's say is spinning left when you observe it you know that the other particle even though it might be very far away is also spinning left because their entanglement means that their their collapsed eigenstate is identical that's one of the way that's one of the things that that it does for us so in this experiment, you take a typical double slit experiment and you pass quantums through one of the two slits effectively. Now, the way that this experiment is set up is that they next pass through a gland thompson prism, which creates a set of entangled quantums that are passing out of the double slit experiment. Now, one of those quantum, if they go through the top path, if they go through the bottom path, it doesn't matter. One of those entangled quantums from each slit is going to immediately go to a detector that we're going to call like detector zero. The other quantums go on a little bit of a longer journey. And the, the journey is interesting because they pass through these films and the films have a roughly 50-50 chance of bouncing a bouncing the quantum perpendicular to its angle of incident with the film or allowing the quantum to simply pass straight through. So those other quantums go through and they bounce through a series of these films until they impact one of four other detectors. And what's cool about the way that this is set up is that two of those detectors, uh, typically noted detector three and detector four, can only receive particles from a certain slit. So detector four can only receive particles that can't originated from the top slit. And detector three can only receive particles that came from the bottom slit. But detector two and detector one can receive particles from both slits. And so let, let's simplify this and explain what it means. If a particle impacts detector two, an entangled particle impacts detector two, then we don't know if it came from the top or the bottom slit of the double slit experiment at the beginning of this arrangement. But if it hits detector three, we know that it came from the bottom slit. And if it comes from detector one, we know that it came, or I'm sorry, if it hits detector four, we know that it came from the top slit. So just like the double slit experiment, kind of where you have the passive identifier noting if a, if a, quantum passed this way you can determine which slit it originated from if a quantum hits detector three or detector four we know the slit that it was created from if it hits detector two or detector one it is it is not known okay one one last thing we need to know about this remember that we have those entangled quantums hitting detector zero um after a quantum hits either detector one, two, three, or four, the time that it took to leave the original contraption, the original double slit experiment, and, and hit the detector is measured. 
and the time between detectors one, two, three, and four is all the same. It takes the same amount of time to hit all those detectors, which they do by very carefully accounting for the lengths of the beams that travel between these detectors. Um, and that distance is shorter than the path of time that hits detector zero. Okay, so the, a particle, an entangled particle goes ahead and hits detector zero, and then its entangled twin goes on its journey and lands wherever it lands. They take the difference in those times and they're able to determine which pairs were entangled, right? So the one entangled particle already hit detector zero. The other entangled particle goes on its journey. And depending on how it bounces through random chance between these films, it will hit one of the other detectors. And then a coincidence machine says, ah, so this one hit at T this one hit at T plus six. So those particles were entangled and we can overlap them. So, Here's the crazy part. On detectors three and detectors four, a clump pattern occurs, which is crazy <laughs> because the universe, let's say, knows that these, these particles either came from the top slit or the bottom slit of the experiment. The information is known, and so they form one clump. One on the top, one on the bottom. If you overlay them together, it looks just like the two clumps in the double slit experiment. Kind of like you would expect. It's wild. Detectors 2 and detectors 1 create the wave pattern because the universe doesn't know which slit they originated from. So when you overlay them, they create the wave pattern just like you would expect to see in the double slit experiment. Now, detector 0 looks like a mess because it's getting entangled particles from every every um single every single test of the experiment it gets one of the entangled particles but here's the crazy part if you use the time to determine which particle it was entangled with and only take the information from those from those same detectors those same entangled pairs if the quantum was going to go ahead, if its entangled partner was going to, in the future, hit detector three or detector four, and therefore we know the slit that the particle came out of, then the entangled particles that hit detector zero, before those other particles even enter the rest of the machine, will show the clumped behavior on the detector. And if the its entangled partner was going to go on to hit detector one or detector two, therefore not telling us what slit the entangled quantum came out of, then the particles that hit detector zero in the past will show the wave function pattern. That is pure insanity. It's pure right. insanity. So to put it differently, the, yeah. the choice that the experimenters make with respect to one entangled particle actually changes the behavior of another entangled particle, even if the choice is made before the entangled particle, or sorry, even if the, cho even if the choice the experimenters make is after the entangled particle already needs to decide whether it's a wave or, or a particle. That's exactly right. Now, you, can't, you, you, cannot, you can't tell the past. Uh, you know what, this is probably too specific. You cannot tell, you can't look at the detector zero where that particle hits and then predict where the other particle is gonna land. Uh, you can't tell the future with it, but the choice, the choice that is made by these these semi-permeable membranes that bounce particles off with a fifty percent chance to determine what detector the entangled twin goes to, that choice 
is already encoded onto the entangled particle effectively. By the time it hits detector zero, it will not violate the pattern that we're supposed to see in the in the uh, corresponding detector that that particle goes to. So this particle hits, the other particle goes on its journey where there's randomness and probability involved, and when it finally mm-hmm. hits a detector, these two particles that were entangled will effectively not violate the clumps or waves pattern that they're supposed to create. Right. Which is... So the, the headline here is that choice today affects the behavior of particles in the past. Effectively, and yes. it's it's important to note that these experiments, both the the quantum eraser experiment, I believe the quantum eraser experiment was only done with electrons and photons, but the yeah. other experiments, the um, the dual slit experiment and the experiment with um, in, using interferometers, those were both done with particles going up to entire molecular structures, entire molecules. Yeah, and at near relativistic speeds is kind and, of the key there. And, and experimenters found that in every case, no matter how big the particle was, no matter what the particle was, it was the contemporaneous act of observation in the instant that affected its behavior in the past. Right. Oh, and so this, this is the big question. This is the big takeaway is what is it about observation that forces these particles to break down into that to collapse from an eigenstate a, a cloud of probabilities into a physical pathway one of the ways i explain yeah. it is like it's like a video game I, I don't know if if you guys are gamers out there but you know your your graphics card and your computer is just constantly churning through trigonometry measuring light source to object to camera and that's how it determines where to put the different colors of the pixels on your screen well to save on computing power it doesn't render the world behind you. Now it knows about the world behind you. And if you go to turn your character, it's going to very quickly render the objects that are coming into your field of view. But the ga- the graphics drivers typically only render that which you are looking at to save on right. computing resources. Makes what sense. appears that the universe does a very similar thing. That until we are looking well, at analogy. something, it's not rendered. It's, it's potential, but it isn't rendered into an actual reality. Right. If that makes sense. Right. And so you have these two parallel phenomena. You have one, the ordering principle, and two, you have what, what we've been describing up till now is called wave function collapse. And yeah. the wave function is essentially that cloud of photons that exists neither in space nor time until the specific point of observation. And that point of observation, it, it does what we call collapsing the wave function. And when you collapse the wave function, you take all that probability, and from it, you divine one particularized reality. And so in, in both instances, you have these mechanisms that fundamentally work against chaos, right? The ordering principle, the universe, it, the universe was created as chaos, pure chaos, uh, an or, unorganized mass of quantum bits. And from there, you develop something like the human mind, right? That was massively adept, you could say, at recognizing and organizing the physical world. Um, and then you have wave function collapse, which is essentially you have a cloud of probabilities that are theoretically existing everywhere and nowhere simultaneously. Um, in space and time, the wave function captures every possibility simultaneously, which again is absolute chaos. And then it takes a concrete observer to basically collapse that into one reality. And on both sides, essentially what you have is this, this, 
this force that seeks to order chaos, right? And wave function collapses, the, the, the effect of the observer on wave function collapse, creating information, is essentially doing that. It's, it's ordering chaos. Um, and, and in doing that, you could think about this, and, and you talk about general relativity and the speed of light. The reason why you can't move faster than the speed of light is, is because what we're witnessing as time, what we're perceiving as time, is essentially cross-sections of reorganized particles. And the fastest that a particle can possibly move is the speed of light. And so speed of light defines the, the rate of change, essentially. And so our observation is seeing little cross-sections of particles reorganizing themselves. And those particles that we're seeing at every instant, we're snapping a set of particles into being. We're collapsing a wave function of probabilistic position particles into actuality. And in a sense, we're entangling wherever, wherever particles are under our dominion and control, those are becoming entangled with the particles that we observe, creating one cross-section of particles. And this is an iterative process. So essentially being what it is, you have, you have absolute chaos and you have a force of creation organizing particles into these cross-sections periodically and then creating what is essentially reality and truth through space and time. Yeah. Uh, and you uh, have uh, to have an observer to do that. I love what you say about about the universe was was born in chaos was created out of chaos. It, it doesn't matter actually if you believe in religion or science as your fundamental orienting force to believe that because it's so cool in Genesis one one or and one two uh, when it says that the spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. The waters. That word is yeah, yeah. Te, tehom, which is chaos in in yeah. it's it, it, it's also Tiamat is the origin in ancient ancient uh Cyrillic, yeah. which is like it's true. I, I, wild <laughs> that, that right. the well, book has like, that idea in it. That's the thing. I don't care what faith you subscribe to. There are only two there, there are two fundamental aspects of being, order and chaos. Sure. Sure. And, and no matter, and, and even if you're a scientist, that's true, because you have chaos, the uncollapsed wave function, and you have order, the observed wave function, the, yep. the observed, the, the, the force of observation that collapses the wave function into reality. Those are two fundamental aspects of being. Whether you're, and it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, you call that the Leviathan, you call it chaos, the, the, the dragon at the star time, or mm. if you're Hindu and you call the ordering force Indra versus yep. calling it God or, or whatever you know, another religion might call it. Right. It's the same two fundamental patterns of being. And, and it's, it's so chaos. crazy too, because then God creates, he says, let there be light. And then he says, and right. he saw the light and it was good. He is like the very first idea he saw it. in the Bible saw is that, that God is this observer, which is God a crazy observed. thing that, that exactly. like, these ancient religions, and, and I, I'm just most familiar with Christianity. It's, I'm not saying that it's not in some other ones. For instance, one of the one of the things about that we talked about before in the Enumalish with ancient Sumerian religion, the thing about Marduk, who is their creator god who, who slew the dragon Tiamat and, and, and the servant Kangu, and from her blood brought fourth humanity kind of like how through iniquity we were we were brought to the world it, through sin. it's actually it's it, actually it, a central myth in every religion yeah well he was surrounded by eyes like one of his right, fundamental exactly. observable characteristics was that he was an observer himself and then one of the first ideas in the bible is that he is the observer it's amazing that right. these ideas exist right. because they are right. telling us about something that we just learned to be true which is that the act of observation creates the universe as such as we go about observing it which it is crazy it, and and it creates it at every instance of being yeah like you being born you being born theoretically 
when you were born, a unique a unique encoded structure was injected into being. That encoded structure had never existed before in space or time. I mean, theoretically, could have. If you're talking about an iterative universe, it could have in a different orientation. Sure. But at least in this in this iteration of being, that single encoded structure exists as a singularity. And because it's so monumentally complex, an insanely complex number of interactions have to take place exactly as they did to ensure that encoded structure exists. And that encoded structure, the moment it was injected into being, theoretically created every single thing that came before it. Because because that encoded structure started observing, every single every other aspect of being had to be snapped into place exactly as it is, such that encoded structure could, could exist. Yeah, well, yeah, which is... It, it is it is crazy it, it, it's it's maddening to even think about in a certain sense and so now here's the question that you have to ask is what all can observe so like right. the scripture says that god observed and the scripture actually says that he taught humanity to observe but right. this this theory this observation how far down the line does it go and and by the way there's been some really interesting double slit experiments about data creation and like for instance they they had uh, an experiment where the the part of the the detector would just simply beep if a particle passed through a given slit and mm -hmm. when the beep was on it made the clump formation but then they turned the beep off and they weren't saving the data anywhere and all of a sudden it went back to the waveform so all, all the only difference was whether or not there was the ability for an observer to hear, right? Because obser right. observation is a lot more than just just visual observation. Um, right. Then there was there was really strange was I don't know what to make about all of these where they would allow an ape to to hear a beep with the headset, um, mm. and in theory the ape could react to it. So when they left the ape alone where no human could react to it uh, or, or see it reacting to a beep, you had wave function. But then when a human observed the ape observing the beeps and the ape could in theory, but didn't necessarily react to it, all of a sudden we collapse back to, to this wow. demonstration. I don't know what to think about all of that, but my point in bringing it up is that it seems that there is something specific about human observation that that causes this wave function to collapse like we seem to be singular in the universe and you could you could theorize different reasons why i mean well, maybe it has something to do with consciousness but what is consciousness is it just a sufficiently large neural network that exists in yeah. our minds like it's a it's a really important question to answer given this insane mystery so i mean elon musk said it well he said human consciousness is a candle in darkness as far yeah. as we can tell, for now, it's a candle in the darkness. We don't know about anything else that matches it in the entire universe. Now, when you consider that, and you also consider the fact that Earth has a protective shield of asteroids to make sure that there are no asteroid-based cataclysms, at least in our lifetime, you, when you consider the fact that the last asteroid-based cataclysm essentially wiped out the apex of reptilian life just to make way for mammalian consciousness, you consider the fact that you know the at the point of abiogenesis, the point that the first life form formed on Earth, oxygen was just barely diffuse enough to avoid planetary combustion. When you consider the fact that the four forces are so precisely calibrated, you have to you have to ask the question, like, is there a reason why you have something like the human mind existing to snap all of this reality into place? 
right? And it, it can't just be mere chance that that's happening. Now, I will say that I mean the, the experiments with the, with the with the apes, the experiments with um, you know lesser life forms trying to collapse the wave function. Essentially, how I think about it is that the wave function collapses when you create information, and the definition of information, as far as I'm concerned, and again, the language informs here quite well. Information, you receive something that puts you in formation with the rest of being, right? Mm -hmm. And so there has to be an action mapped onto that information that's received. And once you once you map an action once you map an action onto stimulus, you have information. Sure. And so that's why the the ape because it wasn't clear whether or not it actually reacts to the the wave going through the the film. There's not necessarily information being created until it reacts, and you have a human mind observing that reaction. Right. Right. And at the same time, when you know the first life forms formed, you had you had uh, single cell organisms moving towards a photon. Right, or or you had uh, eukaryote, pl essentially plankton or algae. You had algae receiving a photon, creating glucose, mm -hmm. creating ATP. There's always some reaction to that information that was received, and the action had to be mapped onto it. Because so, then so... you have, because then what you have is you have if you have an action mapped onto the stimulus, you have further action as an outcome of that. That then other other, I guess, organisms, quote unquote, or other pieces of matter can then react to and map more actions onto it. So here, here's so the fundamentally, question. Fundamentally, go ahead. I, yeah. I think the question is, because well, I, I think that you're, you're exactly right now. It depends on whether, you, whether or not you believe that, that, let's say, this whole universe was made expressly for humans um, or, or not. Uh, but, but here's the question is that, is is the prime observer the this one who who snaps all of the probabilities that existed before him to into into place is the definition of him changing as structures become more advanced i, I think it's a i think it's a very useful tactical idea personally i think that and, and I, you know that could explain why the ape now cannot collapse a wave function in an isolated room, but a human watching an ape can. Right? It can mm -hmm. explain certain things like that because maybe the definition of that that capability evolved with more complex structures. Well, the Pers best way to put it is go go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say personally, I don't believe that per though. But per I personally, and I'm I have no evidence for this this is a belief and, and reasonable people can disagree i think that human observation has always been divine and i think that human observation has been uniquely divine and i think that's because we have a piece of the divine spirit within us and i think uh, that's that's my religious background i i, I think agree that this is why yeah well um, well i think it's, it's divine as we think about divine and to put it differently the chimp the chimp will will create the amount of information that it needs to act in the world Okay. And to a chimp, maybe that's divine. Maybe that's divine for a chimp, right? Like maybe you can perceive a degree of complexity in order to act in the world, and maybe that's sufficient for a chimp to assume as part of something bigger. Probably not, because I mean, given the chimp's behavior, but when you look <laughs> at humans, well, sure, sure, right? And and yeah, I think that's yeah. I mean that's that's where humans notably split from chimps. We have to develop virtue, right? Because female sexual selection demanded that we develop virtue. That's right. consciousness, the, right? Like the idea exactly. that my decisions carry on from here. Exactly, right. And that, that necessitates us to develop virtue, that necessitates us to appreciate beauty, to appreciate being in a, in, a, in a way that other animals maybe have not. 
we don't really know, right? Like we don't know like for birds and stuff. Bird like av- avian uh, life forms have a completely different neural network than we do. Yeah. Like it's it's just it's constructed entirely differently. And so we don't know the degree of intelligence that they might have. We don't know the degree of intelligence that like a uh, octopus might have. Well, we, we, we can we can explain it materially, but we don't we can't perceive it. We don't understand it. It might be indeed that they perceive beauty the same way we do. If you've seen cuttlefish, like cuttlefish, they create these sculptures at the bottom yeah. of the ocean in mating, and they're incredibly beautiful. They have the same kind of fractal patterns that that we observe as beautiful, right? If you look at birds, they have extremely complex uh, dancing rituals for mating that mm-hmm. that wouldn't simply develop if they didn't have a sense of beauty as well, right? And so we don't. It's we perceive reality in a way that we think is divine, but I do think that if you if you accept the notion that an organism essentially creates the reality that it needs to act in the world, and we perceive the world as divine, that does tell you that upon humans is placed this somewhat existential mandate that we must act in a way that is consistent with the divine. Uh, absolutely, at a minimum, at a minimum, yes. Right. Uh, right. I, I, now, see. I think that God created cuttlefish just to mock the dude that <laughs> that learned guitar just to get laid. Because if you're only making a sculpture because you want to have sex with something, I, I I don't know how authentic it. But no, I'm just kidding. Anyhow, I, yeah, I, I, at a minimum. See, and this is this is why this is a beautiful interlacing of divinity and science is because it it, it causes it causes people truly everywhere to agree with this basic fact is like yeah depending on how far you take it depends on how far you you believe it to go but at a minimum we have to accept the fact that our observation is u- uniquely situated in the world now people yes. like elon musk take that and say it's because we're in a simulation you know and, and based on probability, at the, at the end of the day i mean Here's here's the funny thing. At the end of the day, I don't think it's actually a material question whether or not we're in a simulation. Yeah, because it's irrelevant. I mean, we, we we talk we talk we talk about qu- like packets of information, quantum packets. If we're in a, if we're if we're in a cybernetic space, or if we're in, I mean, you could describe our world as a cybernetic space because essentially it's a world of information, right? And you have a photon, which is a positive or negative value in space and time. Which is essentially how a computer operates. It right. defines positive, positive or negative values of binary value in space and time, right? And so it, it's kind of an immaterial question. I mean, it, the only the only way in which it, it is it does have significance is that if there's a simulation, there exists a final reality outside of it or many layers outside of it. But based on what we know about observation and based on what we know about the the, the fundamental realities of order and chaos, whatever final reality exists outside of this reality has to ascribe to the same rules. There has to exist order and chaos in, in, in that space as well. Uh, absolutely. Well, and, I, I think about it this way. is like if, if, if you believe in a, a simulation, I think the reason people get caught up in a simulation is because they, they think necessarily we're like caught up in a silicon simulation. You know, right, like a, right. a, a simulation on a hardware, on hardware somewhere in a different base right. reality. I don't, uh, who cares? Here's the thing. If you believe that, the, even if you're religious, if you believe that God created this world, he's this, he's this creature that exists outside of time that created time as we know it, then we're, and the fundamental element of this this reality that he created for us is something like information then in a way it's not functional like in a way yes we are being simulated not that we're fake not that we're not authentic not that this isn't a reality but just that you already kind of are 
acquiescing to the idea that there is there is absolutely the possibility of a higher reality, a separate reality, whatever whatever way you want to define that for yourself. You know what I'm saying? At the same time, though, like, like if there is, I don't think it would have characteristics that are vastly different from the characteristics gov- that govern the space that we see as reality. I think well, yeah, I mean, well, there, I there think... simply can't be. There simply can't be something besides order and chaos. I think that there. I think that there might be higher, higher dimensions. I, I like, for instance, whatever created the fourth dimension in theory doesn't exist in it, and so that a, a good. That seems yeah. like a possibility, and that's like super string stuff. And I think I think it's a reasonable. good illustration. A good illustration of this is if you look at do you know what the Mandelbrot set in mathematics? Yeah. Okay, so uh, for, for listeners, if you take the equation z squared plus c, and you plug a constant into that equation, let's say you plug in one as c, and so if so z like so one squared for c and z, so one squared is one plus one is two. Then if you plug two back to that equation, you get four plus one is five. If you plug it back in, you get five squared plus one is twenty-six, right? And the number keeps getting bigger and bigger. Now, Mandelbrot said essentially what for what numbers, if plugged in that equation, remain either like in a small set or a repeating set. So if you plug negative one to that equation, you get negative one squared, which is one plus one is two. Or wait, sorry. If you if you plug zero into that equation, you get zero squared, which is one plus one is two. The, the point is, if you plug in some equa- some numbers into that equation, you get a fixed small set. And if you plug other numbers in that equation, you get a rapidly increasing set. And if you, if you put this on a graph, what you essentially get is this, is this pattern that repeats infinitely if you go, if you make numbers smaller and smaller, and repeats infinitely if you make numbers bigger and bigger. And yeah. it has a degree of complexity and beauty that Human simply, human mind simply cannot conceptualize the degree of complexity that, that exists in this one single fractal pattern, and it's based on an exquisitely simple equation. And so, to put it differently, like this reality, if 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 we're living in a simulation, quote unquote, and it's a it's a reality that that is essentially simulating the creation of truth or the creation of being, then whatever exists outside this reality is going to be equally complex. And it's going to have the same, it's going to function on the same principles, the same layers. And it's, it's kind of like a Mandelbrot set. You have, you have these microscopic fractals that build up and become part of this much bigger fractal that it itself builds up and becomes part of a much bigger fractal, right? It's an infinitely increasing, it's, it's, an, it's an infinitely preceding uh, system of complexity and beauty. And nice. so I think at the end of the day, it's... You, if, if you if you accept that all there is is order and chaos and the process of order organizing chaos into meaning and beauty, then it doesn't matter what layer of being we're on. Sure. As long as we're ascribing to those principles. And, and, and I don't think there's, I don't think it's possible to have a system of reality that does not ascribe to those principles. I don't think there is. I, I think, yeah, I think that that's, that's probably, I think that that's probably true. Um, and I can only think that because I cannot go and, measure and, God. And, but... Well, and math, math, math tells us that it has to be, right? Because if you take, I mean, I, whether it's in a simulation and there's just a reality out of this, one is still one, two is still two. This is sure. fundamental reality. Con- so it's everywhere. Yeah. Right? And so if you have a mathematical function that has increasing layers of beauty as you go deeper and increasing layers of complexity, then that's, if, if numbers are fundamentally true, 
which I think they are. I don't think you can deny one is one in any universe or in any reality. One is always one. Then you have to have the system of increasingly complex beauty and meaning within basic truth. Well, and there's got basic be, truth holds beauty. They've got to they've got to be at least somewhat reasonable because our theoretical musings about about and I know we're talking about two different things. We're talking about layers of reality compared to to um, dimensions in physics similar right. but not necessarily the same idea but even if you go up layers uh, up dimensions it's it's the mathematical underpinning that we're able to theoretically assume based on our understanding of the third right. and fourth and dimension that allow us to even think about those higher dimensions so yeah right. it, it, and it that, does, and there's nothing to believe there's nothing to make one believe that truth stops being truth as you ascend or descend you know what I'm right saying? and 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 the thing is math is beautiful yeah. We know this. Like, if you look at these files of the cons, they can, be they can be modeled mathematically. If you look at musical scales, they can be modeled mathematically. There's a like, reason we find truth beautiful. It's because our existential mandate, so to speak, is to create truth. And the wave function collapse indicates that, and so does the ordering principle. Like, sure. all we're doing in this world is creating truth. I, I think, I think, well, I think that's definitely compelling. One, one last thing I want to talk about here, uh, as far as the paper is concerned, because this is where I think... I think the the uh, how does how does they put it in the south how the fork where the fork meets the grits. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit about this idea of the the observer at the end of time. Right. So we talked about the ordering principle. We talked about the fact that if you look at the if you look at matter in the history of the universe, if you basic observation tells us that or that matter is moving from. Uh, less complex, more rudimentary patterns into more complex, more ordered, more meaningful patterns. That's evident if we just look at the history of time. And then you have wave function collapse, which essentially does something similar. It takes chaos, it takes massively organized information, and collapses it into one reality. And so if you have the ordering principle basically organizing matter into more and more complex ways, into ways in which the matter itself becomes more and more adept at recognizing patterns and creating patterns, then theoretically at the end of time, you have a linear trajectory moving matter into the end of time where there's a maximally ordered state or a maximally ordered observer. And since we know in wave function collapse that observation today changes the behavior of particles, not just photons, but all matter, even in history, then, then that maximally ordered observer, that maximally ordered state, its mere act of observation theoretically snaps into place everything that had to precede it. And so that's why, I mean, truth has to exist. We know that. I mean, one is always one. Truth always exists. And so there has to be being. And if being is going to exist, it just, just like the Metabrod set, just like, just like fractals, being is going to get more and more complex, more and more, uh, it's going to organize the chaos more and more around it. And it's going to organize that chaos into more and more meaningful and complex patterns. And so theoretically, at the end of the time, there is something that's maximally meaningful, maximally complex, and maximally beautiful. And its active observation is going to, that is what defines the four forces as precisely as they have to be defined. That is what defines the concentration of Earth exactly as it had to be for life to exist. Like, its active observation necessarily snapped into place everything that preceded it. The same way that your DNA, like, when your unique code was injected into being, it necessitated the exact being that exists within. Like everything that happened to create that code had to happen 
exactly as it did to create that code. Right. And so the same way at the end of time, you have an, an exquisitely, probably exquisitely simple, yet beautiful and complex state of being that its act of observation necessitates the entire trajectory of being up until its point of existence. And so it's kind of like God, right? Like, and, and this is the common myth in every single religion. You have God or the creator slaying a dragon and creating out of his body the world, creating being out of its world. In the, the, the Sumerian, the Mesopotamian myth, you have Marduk slaying Tiamat. You have in the, uh, I think the book of Job talks about God slaying the Leviathan. The central myth in Vedic, in, in Vedic Brahmanism is Indra, inebriated by Soma, slays the dragon, and by doing so brings in the dawn and the rivers. Um, and so it's a central myth. It's, it's essentially the force of order slaying chaos to bring in the world. And that yeah. force of order, you have, you, have, you have it reflected in the ordering principle, you have it reflected in wave function collapse, and you have it reflected in the iterative process by which all of matter in the universe, as we've seen, has been fully organizing itself into more and more complex patterns, more and more complex and meaningful patterns that are more stable, that persist throughout time, that are more true, more true in the sense that they can sustain themselves throughout chaos. Yeah, and that's think, exactly what, go ahead. I, uh, no, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's just it. I, go, I mean, and it is, it's an idea that does re repeat itself everywhere. You've got Zeus and Hydra. Who is it? Hunter, who sl slays Hrace Valger? Is it, is it Thor or uh, Odin? Who, who kills who now? Hrace, Hrace Valker? You talking Jorgmunder? Oh, Jorgmunder, that's right. What's Hrace yeah. Valker? That, well, here, here's wait, a which really one's the world thing. serpent? That now would be Jorgmunder. Jorgmunder? Is, yeah. is that Thor or Odin? Uh, I believe that is Thor, yeah. Okay. The cool thing is it's the oldest story that humanity has. Because yeah, if, you yeah. at, if you look at um, Indo-European Indo language, Proto-Indo-European, they have the same word for God, for serpent, and for chaos. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely. It's which is because and it's because of the fundamental reality. Those are fund and those are fundamental aspects of being. And I would say for humans, especially, serpent is a fundamental aspect of being. Oh, yeah. It is chaos. It is it is what brings chaos. Well, right? and we we have we have patterns in our in our physiology that are adapted right. to serpents. In yeah, a very Jordan Pearson talks a lot way. about that. Yeah, right, exactly. For sure. Exactly. Um Okay. And so that's so the theory. And if I can sum it up, it's like you have an ordering principle that's clearly organizing matter on a linear trajectory towards being more complex. It's moving from more rudimentary patterns and more chaos to more order and more complex patterns. That is clear. If you look at the history of existence, that is clear. That is happening. And it is happening in a way that the four forces in entropy simply cannot explain. They cannot explain why matter at some point decided to encode itself into nucle nucleotide structures like mRNA and DNA that repeat themselves simply so that they can persist through chaos for that sole reason and become more and more adept at organizing chaos. So you have that phenomenon, the ordering principle, and then you have wave function collapse that essentially says that what, what, what life is doing is taking a massive set of chaotic probability and collapsing it to one reality. So you have the same phenomenon on both levels. You have the ordering principle that collapses chaos over time. And you have the you have wave function collapse that collapses, collapses chaos in each cross-section at each instant of time. 
And then you have, because the ordering principle is moving matter towards a maximally ordered state or a maximally ordered thing, the only conclusion, the only conclusion is that at the end of time, there is a maximally ordered state or a maximally ordered thing that through its simple act of observation creates being. Yep. That you have at the end of time, something like a god that slays Leviathan and from the slaying Leviathan creates all of being as we perceive it. The, and I, this is the idea that I love. Uh, I, I think that I think that it's it's true. I think I I don't think there's any way for it not to be true. I and I also think that this is what the alpha and the omega is. Uh, like he, the he the tells end. us he's the end of time, but also he's God. He's the beginning, some, somewhat of right. a singularity. He's the beginning I, of time I, too I actually, because, I, because it snaps that because because at the end the end is the beginning when the end right. is observed it creates the beginning exactly. just like exactly. when we observe here on earth we we determine right. the path of the stars and, like it is such a fundamentally beautiful idea and the and, and the fact that human beings exhibit this in part that we're able to do it for a certain set of data if not the total set of data like the observer data, i think that's I think that's the mark of the divine on us. I think that's the breath of life in us. I think it is. No question. I think it's the uh, the idea that we were made in the image of God. I think it's that right. he that observer gave us when when he created us and he looked at us. And he said it is good that he right. he took his identity and his spirit and he gave us a piece of that and he taught us how to observe and he taught us right. how to see and we go through the world and we act like this this fallen incomplete iteration of him because i truly believe it's what we are prince of the divine is yeah and that's the right way to say it. it's not just a part of us it is what we are it's what we were created to do and it's our purpose and especially especially if you look at the world the word information it's like we're we're being essentially bombarded with outside sense data with outside information and there's an ordering principle built into our framework that tries to organize all that sense data into something that is meaningful, right? And we're, we're, we're bombarded with sense data, but we're, we're putting ourselves in formation with all of that quote unquote information in a way that is akin to the divine. Yeah. Well, and, and we it's, know it's... that because we feel divine. Why? Why do we have this concept that like God, that Jesus is the Son of God? He's fully human. He's fully God, it's, it's, and it, that our goal is to die to self and to be like Him. Like it is expressly the idea of the back, Judeo-Christian religion that you are supposed right. to die and become a pattern of the divine. Well, it goes right? back to this idea of it goes back to this idea of synchronization. I think sure. I, I think at the core of synchronization, right? Because you have essentially DNA is modeling the world. We're, and, and, and actually, like, if you look at, so this is, this is kind of interesting. Men who are extremely stressed at the time of the conception of their children, on average, have children who are more prone to neuroticism and stress than others, all other things being equal. So think about that for a second. So the, the inputs that we get from our environment don't just shape us, they shape our offspring. They shape what kind of gametes we create. And so we're, we're, we're quite literally modeling the environment as we create life. That's what life is. It's a model of the environment. And so the, the idea of Christ is essentially, it's something like the thing that modeled the environment most closely, the thing that modeled the ordered perfection of the environment most accurately, right? And that's why, that's why he always told the truth. That's why he never lied, right? And that's why the truth is so important because when you tell the truth, you're modeling reality. And when you don't tell the truth, you're essentially violating an existential mandate yeah. to model reality. And he right? said, I am the truth. Right, like... right, exactly. And so, and, and that's essentially what 
I mean, that's, and I think every single, every single human ethic that you can think of finds its root in truth and finds its root in this idea of synchronization. Because even something as basic as like the golden rule, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Like, you know how you want to be treated. You know that. In your heart of hearts, to, to bring the best self out of you, you know how people need to treat you to make that happen, right? And so treating other people the same is simply synchronizing your outward behavior with the way in which you know people want to be treated because you know how you want to be treated. It's just synchronization. And so truth is synchronization. That's why one is like the, the, the most fundamental truth, the only thing that we know to be true outside this reality, inside this reality is that one is one. Yeah. It's a reflective property. That no. what, like truth is truth. Like, like what is, is what is. That's the deepest truth there is. That or, we, that we or... can ascertain, that we can comprehend. It's that one is one, right? And that's why the observation effect essentially does is essentially does that. It 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 synchronizes your being with the be, with with what is witness in reality. It, it's a synchronizing effect that basically does one is one. I, I, boom! I think... There's one. There's there's one cross section, and then the next instance, boom! There's another cross section. One is one, right? And and that's why like the the core ethic is synchronization. The core ethic is is you must do what being commands. You must do what being requires. Synchronize yourself to the, to the exigencies of being. That's what Abel did, right? And Cain refused to do that. When being told Cain, what you're doing is wrong, Cain said, no, you're wrong, I'm right. And that's what led to the murderous impulse. And that's what, actually, I think that's actually the root of all human evil, is the demand that what reality is telling me is wrong and I'm right. Well, yeah, I mean, oh God, I could literally talk about this forever. Yes. Um, in fact even if you go back into the garden like the thing that caused the fall there was was satan coming to eve and saying eat of the tree that you were commanded not to and you'll have and the temptation was you'll have the understanding of god which she wasn't god so the the temptation there is effectively you'll be what you're not you know you'll you'll take on the responsibility yeah, the, of something you, you'll you can you can look reality in the eye and shirk responsibility from it you can operate in a way that is counterfactual to the truth and we know that right. it was counterfactual to the truth in lisa's story because she didn't become god she just became naked you know what i'm saying right. like right and, exactly and, and so uh, it's such a it's such a beautiful idea well, here's I love the funny what you thing. Said. okay go ahead no no well here's the funny thing. i mean the story of adam and eve first off and this is this is an aside that we should get back to but I think the story of Adam and Eve is common to all of humanity. And what I mean by that is whether or not you're Christian, that story is true. It's fundamentally true. Because somewhere in your life, a woman has screwed something up for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How did you know this? Wow. <laughs> I'm just guessing. I feel so heard. <laughs> well, no, it's because I'll say Amber this. Heard. I mean, the, the story of Adam and Eve is essentially the discovery of consciousness. Yeah. In primates. Yeah. And, and we know that because he ta- like, God tells Eve, in sorrow thou shalt bear children. And it's a moment of consciousness, right? So at some point, humans observe that, okay, our skulls are getting bigger and bigger, and that's causing pain in childbirth. Or they simply saw those two things happening simultaneously, and they wrote a story about it, right? Sure, yeah. And then they talk about how humans discover the, the they discover time, they discover that they have to work for their future prosperity, right? And, and that's what God tells Adam. He says, by the sweat of, the, by the sweat of your bra- brow, thou shalt sustain yourself, right? And so... It's a fundamentally true story. Now, this is where I, I somewhat depart from the, well, from the traditional explanation, because 
you could say that the snake was Satan, and Satan is what forced humanity to confront its consciousness. You could say that. Yeah. What I would say is that that chaos is a constant demand, and we're constantly called to stand against the challenge of chaos. That's an existential burden that is placed upon us as humans. And and life is suffering for that reason. And so the snake in the garden, it's like, you can create the perfect world. And and, th- and this probably happened. After the cataclysms that humanity suffered between 50,000 years ago and 15,000 years ago, between those cataclysms, at some point, humanity found stability. But there's always chaos. There's always a new challenge that you have to confront. And that's essentially what the snake in the garden is. Right? And I don't right. think it's necessarily a strictly evil thing. I think it's a necessary part of of you call it God's plan, you call it an essential part of existence as such, is that there is chaos, we are an ordering force, and we have to order it. Well, who, put, who put the snake in the garden? Well, here's the thing, like, and, and God, for, for all his power, and this is, why, this is why evil exists, this is why Satan exists, God, for all his power, he is simply a force of truth. And, I mean, truth is all-powerful. Truth is all-powerful. But it takes time to catch up with evil. There's yep. a learning phase, and we know this. Anytime you make a, a a border more permeable to information, there's chaos that ensues. Anytime, sure. when human consciousness first came about, there was chaos, no question. We discover our egos, we discovered ego fueled conflict, and there was hell to pay, no Instantly question. That's why murder. it was, an, and that's yeah. why it was an actual fall. That's why it was an actual fall, right? Yeah. And so, anytime, anytime there's more information, anytime there's more, we're an ordering force. We order chaos, and chaos is no joke, right? And so, but, but that's, that's our existential mandate. That's what we must do. We're here to create truth. And we know that because we, we have a, we have a motivation towards beauty. We have an instinct towards creating beauty and sustaining beauty. Our, 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 our most virtuous selves are aligned towards that endeavor, right? And there's a reason for that. There's something divine in us that says, bring forth a good creation, right? right exactly. For and sure. so... And so, but, but the, the thing that we have to, the thing that we bring forth that creation against is chaos. And so snake had to exist in the garden, whether or not it was evil, whether or not it, it, it exists, period. God doesn't have control over it. Yeah, you God know, is what helps us order it, but I, it exists independent of God. Chaos think, exists independent of God. I think about it this way, and, and I, I could absolutely be wrong, but I think about it like this. God can keep the snake out of the garden the the garden's called heaven and he can create beings that exist in that garden and those are called angels um he chose not to do that i i believe he's all powerful he chose not to do that in our case uh he could have chosen otherwise in my opinion i think that he put the snake in the garden to make us into what we are because without the snake let's say without temptation without evil we wouldn't be human as such. We would be something else. You know, and he didn't even have to make a rule that could be broken, but he did. And why would you choose to do something like that? Well, uh, hell yeah. if I know. But that, I, think, for, I, think yeah. it, I think it might be because he wanted to make us like he was. And just like yeah. he, at the beginning of time, hovers over the surface of Tehom and calls yeah. from it at habitable order... I think that he wanted to to make us in his image that yeah. we had to combat with the same thing that we had yeah. to be 
this this that's where conscience driven element in yeah. his creation i mean that's where that's where that's where i depart from the christian corpus because sure. i don't i don't I, I don't think the snake in the garden was up to god that, hey look uh, i like, think I, I think it was i think it was a force of chaos outside his control i don't have a and, picture of it so i can't tell right, you well fair enough <laughs> fair enough because no honestly and and the idea that god is all powerful i mean you have jacob wrestling with god you have uh abraham negotiating with god before he destroys uh sodom and gomorrah you do have god portrayed as a force of order and truth and beauty and love but with limitations and yeah. I, I do think that's well, the world. I, I do. I do think that's the world we live in. We live in a world, and 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 don't get me wrong. God is all powerful. Truth is all powerful, but it's not. And I don't want to call it vulnerability. It's like truth is not vulnerable to deception, but the people who carry out the orders of truth are vulnerable to deception. Like the force of truth is all encompassing. The force of truth is everything. That's why we're here. That the 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 reason why being persists is to create truth and order. There's no other question for being. I think I but, think you're right about. But there's right there, there but 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 the force of truth, the force of order, the force of creation, it does not, it, it's not immune to obstacles, and there are obstacles to its progress. There definitely are, and the human the human capacity for for destruction and the human capacity for deception and evil are certainly one of those obstacles, and that's something we have to contend with. I, I, right? I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Let me give you let me give you one food for thought because you've given me plenty. Um, and, and maybe, maybe this is, is where we wrap it up, but I, I think that the idea of God struggling with, with Jacob or the idea of God bargaining with Abraham or negotiating with Lot or these times when he has changed his mind or enacted in a struggle, it's interesting to me because I don't believe that God exists in time strictly. I think that god created time i think that uh i think that the rules of thermodynamics necessitate that something created time and whatever that something is i call it god uh anyhow it's interesting that that would even be a concept so i guess the the concept that i would think about is what does it mean for something that doesn't exist in time to change its mind what does it mean for something that doesn't exist in time to change at all and my personal thought process on it is that sacrifice requires time sacrifice tells us about what the nature of god actually is but the way that we sacrifice in in our world is we make a bargain with the future and that's how we mm -hmm. understand sacrifice and i i believe this very very fundamentally i could be wrong i believe that time is created was created for us so that we could understand sacrifice because it's by sacrifice that we get to learn about the nature of God and therefore truth. I think that I don't, I'm not convinced that he changes his mind. I convinced that he shows us that he sacrifices and he uses time as the backdrop to show us this picture of himself. Uh, could be. I wrong. like that. I like to talk about the invention of time because I do think, I do think that existence as such is iterated. And I do think our iteration of existence would test the function and capabilities and meaning of time. Because before we existed, all that existed were particles. And they were organized in cross-sections. And there was order. There was order until there was life. And then life had to contend with the chaos within that order. Right? Because you had, 
you had atoms and molecules and everything organized into some kind of symphony. Some kind of, they were synchronized. They were following the rules of being. But, and this is why the snake is in the garden, because no matter what, you have to test what you currently have. That's the mandate, to test what you have against chaos. And so the moment particles fell into a synchrony, fell into a symphony of organization, was introduced life that had to contend with particles organized in specific cross sections over time. They had to contend with that and order it further. And then you have the human mind, which doesn't simply take order, the meaning of order in cross sections, but assigns a ethical value to that, assigns meaning to that. And there's, and then there's meaning and beauty in that order as well. And so the, the, the constant requirement here is that we, we might reach a state of absolute equilibrium, like the Garden of Eden. We might reach it, but there's always something else to order. And right now we're testing, we're testing the meaning and uh, function of time. You could say that life is doing that. Huh. But at the end of, at the, at the end of this iteration, so to speak, there might be many more iterations. There might be layered iterations of simply testing time throughout being. And at the end, you have a set. You have a set of tested iterations of, of, of space and time. And then from that, you divine some meaning from that. Or you organize all those iterations into a greater order structure. And then you introduce a snake into that <laughs> garden of Eden. Right? So, no, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's constant. That's why that's the fractal, that's, a, that's why the Mandelbrot set is infinite. We certainly can't disprove it. Um... I, this is a, but I, but to that to that point i do love what you said i love what you said that there is what there is and that is that's as far as we can go um that is that is truth or but i would i would say too that perhaps and this is a insane idea perhaps if you're the maximally order observer perhaps if you're the observer at the end of time perhaps if you're the alpha and the omega it's not there is what there is there is i am that i am uh, there is I am that I am. And this is be- why beautiful sentiment. This is why I really like and you know, I last time we talked we talked about the, the Eastern corpus a little bit, the Eastern corpus sure. of thought. They talked about existence as one breath of Brahma. So Brahma was a creator. And yeah. and actually I think this is where the linguistic overlaps happen a little bit. So Brahma is kind of the patriarch, the founder of this iteration of time. And I think Brahma has some overlap to Abraham, I think. Um because most of the Hindu stories are about patriarchs, not about God. There is a god, there's a core god, which is, one of them is Vishnu, which is that from which everything emerges. So being is basically Vishnu sleeping on a bed of serpents, and from his navel grows out a, a lotus, and on that lotus sits one iteration of Brahma, one iteration of being. But then there's Shiva, which is essentially the entire ordered structure of every single iteration at the end of time. That's kind of the... Me- the quote of matching order observer existing outside of time. That's every single iteration of being, every single breath of Brahma in, in one totality. And so this is why the, the Eastern Corpus kind of talks, and this is why Hindus talk about reincarnation, because it's not strictly one set of being. It's not mm. just one matching order observer. It's iterative, right? And you have a code, like your DNA is a unique piece of code that exists in this iteration, but it might exist in different iterations as well. And, and this... this the, the reason why I like this theory is because, like, it also overlaps with, like, multiverse theory in physics, which is there are an infinite number of universes. It's like, well, if there are an infinite number of universes, there are an infinite number of 
scenarios in which your single strand of DNA has to exist. And and that those iterations have to be matched the order as well, because there has to be an ordered structure, an ordered set of patterns to help that encoded structure emerge, right? Because it's maximally complex, that single encoded structure. And so it's, yeah, it's sort of like that's that gets into that. I mean, that's where super string comes from. So it's like, exactly. Sure. Right. And but, so, and so right. that's why like the Eastern corpus, it addresses this issue, which is there are multiple realities. But and, they had, and each they reality had is a single way better problem. drugs back then too. <laughs> <laughs> and so. that's why I love, that's why I love the beta creation myth because the beta creation myth specifies, it says the way the world was created is that Indra was inebriated by Soma yes. when you slay the dragon. And Ambrosia. Right. They and specify like... that. Right, right. And and I mean, anyone who's who's been inebriated by Soma can attest to the fact that the core experience is you're a hero and you slay the dragon of chaos and create the world. That's, That's the what... core experience. Hunter's Hunter's strung out. Yeah. <laughs> like literally every day. Um you, Gosh, what you... a chance that Jordan Peterson listens to this. Oh, hi. Oh, I don't know. Every episode. <laughs> yeah, um, no. he, he's, he loves the show. Trust me. Yeah. We're going to ask him. I'll yeah, tell you one sure. thing that's interesting is, you know, uh, when I was very young, I had a vision of heaven as being a place where everyone was about their work, iteratively changing it and improving it. And then I heard Jordan Peterson say, uh, you know, that heaven is a place where everyone is about the improvement of that place in that structure. And I was like, that's interesting. Of course, I had a little bit more specific on trade and I didn't have the philosophical bent when I was a child. And then the really interesting thing is at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes what heaven is and it's everybody from uh, the various worlds that he creates that are Narnia and our world, right? And it's everyone running to the center of Narnia. And as they come to the center of Narnia, they see another wardrobe. And then beyond that wardrobe is a newer, more perfect Narnia. And so heaven right. in C.S. Lewis' mind is constantly heading to the better heaven. It's ever receding. Yes, yep. exactly. And so it's, we're getting it's closer to it, though. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's it's also like the state of heaven is is finding the better heaven. Like right. it, it, it's like that is the end in some sense. Yes. Well, so, that's yeah. the, that's the singularity, isn't it? Like, yeah. like th- that. Well, we also know this in our lives. It's like when you're moving towards a goal, you're, that's when you feel maximally fulfilled and maximally happy. Is when you're moving yeah. towards something good, right? Yeah. It's not getting to the good thing; it's moving towards it. That's yeah. what that's what gives you happiness. And, yeah. and that, I mean, th- this is a topic that that the most religious scholars and, and have debated about at infinitum is having this static state of, of maximum worship and beauty, or is it this continual, continual growing state? And in a singular, in the idea of a singularity, like what's the difference? It's that the exponential increase of, of meaning and order is happening all at once. It's happening so quickly that it's happening simultaneously. Like that is the definition. And that doesn't matter if you're talking about like the, the code singularity where Skynet comes and kills us or, or, you know, a singularity of time and purpose, let's say. So anyway, and that's the, and that's why God is infinitely, what what we think of as God is infinitely powerful, infinitely omniscient because that end of time never comes. The end of the iterations don't come. They're infinite. They're, and we can't conceptualize the infinite. We can't. They don't but come, theoret- but they are. Theoretically, they are. That, I, I, that's great. I love that. They are. Like, there is something, theoretically speaking, at the end of this, this infinite 
this infinite process of creation of yeah. different iterations of individual breaths yeah. of Brahma. There is something at the end. It's ever, it might be ever receding. It might be ever increasing in its complexity and, 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 and nature of perfectness. It might, it might be ever increasing in, in those, in those dimensions, but it's still there. Right. Well, and it's individual act of create it's individual act of observation is doing all of this. And we're kind of embodying it, right? We're reflecting its mandate. And we know that because we have an instinct towards truth. We have an instinct towards beauty. Why do we have those things? Why man. do we not tell our kids it's okay to lie? Why don't we, why don't we, you know, stomp on flowers when we see them instinctually? We don't do that. Some people do. <laughs> right? I mean, no, yeah. I mean, really, some people, some people do, but some but people you know this, make the bed you know this, and some people take it right crap the bed right and, and but, but we know we know when, when someone yeah. instinctually when someone instinctually destroys beauty we know they're weak we yeah. know they're, they're Absol- sick absolutely we know they're, we know they're we know they're sick at the very least yes. right yes and and but we know that why do we know that why do we know that it's it's good to sustain beauty it's good to preserve truth why oh, do we know these things go ahead Hunter. <laughs> if we're not modeling something bigger yeah, no, I think I think that's it exactly. I mean, like you know, it, it's something that sits underneath the physical laws, right? It's right. something that it's something that's inexplicable, um, and that's man, that's good, man, Harry. I'm so happy we got to have you on the show today. I know I got to sit and listen to some really <laughs> in-depth conversations, and quite honestly, that's it's. I love doing that. I love knowing when it's the when I can just hear people who have just like insightful views into this and it's really cool too because i've seen christopher talk about this idea and it's cool to see you two guys just kind of come like two ships you know that just kind of like i don't know titanic in the middle of the night i don't know how to make the (laughs) metaphor work but you know it's good and so i've just had a really good time uh one thing i do know is that as people are headed to better themselves and to create the ultimate uh, version of themselves and re- re- reveal just truth and justice to the world, you can't do that with a weak, soft body. No, and you so can't. You, <laughs> you so you need to go to you have, you have to go to our sponsor's website, fnxfit.com. <laughs> Maximally uh, they, order the chaos of your <laughs> pathetic <laughs> physical form with some creatine, you sloths. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Hari. You really helped me out there a lot. So, <laughs> yeah, go to fnxfit.com. Use checkout code CarlPulling for fifteen percent off. You can also get there um, by going to carlpulling.com/fnx. And uh, yeah, the, look, you're um, frankly you're a mess. Uh, to quote the doctor <laughs> himself, you, you need tinctures and salves and, and ointments, medications. You need it all, and you can get them there. You get some money off, we get a kickback. So check that out. Hari, thanks so much how for coming on that? the show. Wait, wait, I, I gotta, I gotta ask Carl. How do I spell that? Because I'm oh. a bit of an athlete. I don't know if I mentioned, but <laughs> it's 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 FNX Fit F I T, okay. and it's checkout code is C A R L P O O L I N G. Yep. Oh, terrific. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so I got some greens, some proteins. It looks like pre workout. Okay, oh yeah, stuff. yeah. It's All right. it, look, it's. I don't know much about it, but they pay us. Uh, <laughs> and and they say, very obviously not... don't listen to our ad reads. Yeah, well, for your, for, your, for your listeners here, this is not scripted. This is genuinely, like, this is genuine interest. Yeah, from, that's, uh, look, that's about, about your sponsor. That's really the reason yeah, we thanks. brought you on today. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> this, this has been such a great conversation. I just want to say thanks so yeah. much for taking the time. It was such serendipity that we met. And we're, it's like oh, totally. increased serendipity yeah. that we're focusing on these same ideas. Uh I, I love having conversations like this. I hope that our audience loves it too. We'd love to have you back. So 
Thank you. We love it. And what what do you have to plug? What you know? Where do people find you? Um, obviously, if you have a question for any of the three of us, email us at carlpooling at gmail dot com, and we'll get it to the appropriate people. But Hari, you got anything to plug? Anything to share? I don't have much to plug. I just, I mean, tell the truth. Like that's what I have to tell people out there. Like love I will it. say, I mean, when I, when I came to law school, you know, um, and you can actually, if you Google this, you can read about. It. Just Google Emory Law Sasha Volek controversy. And essentially what happened is someone was reading, a professor was reading from a Supreme Court case that used uh, slurs against homosexuals. And he, yes. he read the quote from Justice Alito because yes. it's a law class. And he read the quote, right? Student body went up in arms. They, you know, there were protests. People walk, walk out of class and, and go into these, these walkouts, these protests. And there was a chill on campus. And eventually, I, you know, I, I posted a Facebook message basically saying, like, guys, like, get a grip. You're adults. Like, this is... <laughs> It's, it's a law school, and when you're in court, when you're representing a client who's, you know, had their rights violated, you can't decide simply to blurt out, to bleep out words that you don't like, Yeah. right? And it was, I mean, for a while, people, I was ostracized, I had this campaign against me, people were trying to get me expelled, mm-hmm. uh, but eventually people, you know, I, you know, careful conduct, and uh, solid head on my shoulders, and treating people well, and wanting the best for others, I navigated through it, and I was fine. You know, so don't be afraid to stand up, tell the truth. That's the only thing that's going to help us here. You know, like the world's getting crazier and fear is not the answer. Fear is not the answer. Tell the truth. That's your, that's your, that's your best hope. Because either pain now or pain in the future. That's a conservative podcast for you. I'm not going to plug my social media. (laughs) I'm going to plug the truth generally. I love it. Hey, look, I love that. Tell the truth. Tell the truth because your your purpose in this world, as far as we can tell from both the religious tradition and science, is that you are to interpret and tell and order reality. And you have to do that by bringing it into alignment with the truth. Uh, it's a beautiful thought. And to do anything else would just be gay and retarded. So, <laughs> wow. That's a good turn. <laughs> I just, I, a little I, bit of a turn. I'm not sure what slurs were used, but I wanted to make sure I had a couple in there. Hey, guys. Oh thanks God. for listening. Follow the show at Carl Pooling. We're on all the social media, carlpooling at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again to Hari. And if you're out there right now within the sound of my voice, please get tested. <laughs>